Bibles and turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We're looking today at chapter 10, and if you'd like to follow along in the red Bibles around you, you'll find the passage begins on page 1033. 1033, we're looking at Revelation chapter 10. The whole chapter today, it's only 11 verses. But encourage you to look there as I read to you, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But then in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth, it will, be as, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us and preserving it so that we could read it to know that we're reading the very word of God. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts so that we might see wonderful things from this portion of your word. We pray you would do it for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus name. Amen. If you've ever attended a play or a musical, or even sometimes a movie, then you've experienced an intermission. I actually even experienced an intermission during a very long worship service one time. It's a break. It's an interlude. For what purpose? The intermission uh, serves many different purposes, but one of the, a couple of the purposes are to give the actors, uh, the people in the musical, maybe the people in the movie, the workers, uh, a rest in the midst of a long play or musical. Uh, it, it enables them to get ready for what's coming next, maybe to ready the set uh, for uh, what's coming next. It also gives the audience uh, a break, particularly if it's a, a, a maybe a boring musical or a boring play. They, they may need to get up and go to the to the, to the uh, foyer to get uh, some refreshment, to kind of wake up so they can be alert for the second part of the play or the musical. I was actually reading uh, something this past week that was talking about intermissions, and it uh, suggested that there's another reason for an intermission. 
Yes, it can serve as a way to give the actors and the workers rest. And yes, it can give time for the set to be made ready and for the audience to get a break. But there's another reason, another purpose for an intermission. And that is to give the people who are watching some time to process what they have been seeing. It gives them, it gives them a, a little bit of a buffer, a little bit of a stopping point so that they can reflect on what they've been experiencing and hopefully then take it in more deeply. Revelation 10 is a kind of intermission. This is an intermission not because those who are being described in Revelation 10 need a break or need some kind of rest. But we're given Revelation chapter 10 and the events that are recorded in Revelation 10 to give us some time to process and some time to reflect. Remember where we are in our study in the book of Revelation. Last time we were looking at chapters 8 and 9 and the seven trumpets. One of the cycles that we get in Revelation, these seven trumpets of of God's judgment on the rebellious earth, on those who are not in relationship with him. And we've talked about how uh, these seven trumpets uh, are recording the history between the two advents of the Lord Jesus Christ from the time that he came the first time until he comes again. And we looked at the end of chapter nine last time and the blowing of the sixth trumpet. And we won't get the seventh trumpet until the end of chapter 11. And in between, we have chapters 10 and most of chapter 11 as a type of intermission, as a break, as an interlude in this cycle that we are being given before the seventh trumpet will blow. And this is not the first intermission that we've encountered. When we looked at chapter 6, we saw not the seven trumpets, but the seven seals. And we saw chapter 6 ending with the sixth seal. And chapter 7 gave us an intermission. Before the seventh seal was opened, John was given a break. He was given a picture. He was given a glimpse of what is happening in heaven itself. And God gave John and the people of God this incredible picture of God gathering his people together, keeping them safe and protected as they are worshiping and glorifying the Lord and enjoying one another in the heavenly realms themselves. What was the reason why he gave them that intermission back in chapter 6 and 7? It was to encourage God's people that in the midst of the hard things that were being shared about the seals being opened, of God's judgment being issued out on the rebellious creation, they're also being reminded, they're being encouraged that in the midst of those things, in the midst of those hard things, in the midst of those trials of the suffering and the persecution, they were being called to remember what is true. What, it, what is true in the heavenly realms at this very moment and what is true for you in your future as a way to encourage and strengthen them. So we have this intermission here in chapters 10 and 11 with the seven trumpets. These trumpets that are revealing God's judgment against sinful creation and those not in relationship with the Lord between the first advent and the second advent. And we've been reading about these hard things, difficult things, and God stops and gives John a glimpse of hope. He reminds John and the people that were reading this letter for the first time and all of God's people throughout history that are reading this letter, reminding them what is true. It's as if God is saying, remember what is true and hold fast to it. But then 
take it and proclaim what is true to the entire world. This passage is meant to be a source of great hope and encouragement and strength and motivation for God's people this morning. So let's look at those two things. How he says that we are to hold fast to what is true. And then secondly, that we're to take what is true and proclaim it to the world. So first of all, the reminder that we are to hold fast to what is true. There are differing opinions among the commentators about who this another mighty angel is in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Some of the commentators believe it was some kind of a higher order of an angel, a mighty angel. And, And some of the commentators believe that this is actually a picture of Jesus Christ himself. Now, I tend to think that it's actually a picture of Christ for reasons that we'll see here in just a minute. But I would say that the exact identity of this angel is not explicitly crucial here. Because either way, whether an angel or Christ himself, we are getting a picture of who God is and what he has done for his people. In order to do that, John is being given these images here that we read about in these verses that have their anchor in the Old Testament. There are all kinds of Old Testament imagery and references that are being used here from Genesis and Exodus, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos and the Psalms. And all of these references in the Old Testament are meant to remind the people of God what is true and what does he tell them? Well, we see the first thing. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. This angel comes down wrapped in a cloud. In the Old Testament, the idea of a cloud coming is almost always used as a reference for God coming into the midst of his people. Think about some of these references. Genesis chapter 15. As God was establishing the covenant with Abraham and Abraham slayed the animals and laid them side by side. And God himself walked between them. We're told that it was a smoking fire pot that walked between the animals establishing the covenant. Exodus chapter 3, God called to Moses, called Moses to be his spokesman to Pharaoh. And how did he do it? Through a burning, smoking bush. Exodus chapter 13, God led his people out of Israel or led his people out of out of the uh, out of Egypt and heading them towards Israel. And as they're in the wilderness, he promised to lead them as he did through a pillar of cloud in fire. Exodus chapters 19 and 20, God called his people to Mount Sinai and Moses was summoned up to the to the top of the mountain and God gave his law to his people. And we're told that it was a thick cloud that descended on the mountain as God gave his people his law. Numbers chapter nine, we read about God coming into the tabernacle, the place of worship in the midst of God's people as a great cloud descended on the tabernacle. This, this idea of being wrapped in a cloud, this idea of a cloud coming into the midst of the people is to represent that God is with his people. He is near them. He is protecting them. He is leading and guiding and directing them. And when John sees this angel being wrapped in the cloud, it is a picture for John, a reminder to John and for the people that read it. God is with us as his people in the midst of even very difficult and hard things. That's part of what he's saying here that is true. Another thing that he points to 
That God is faithful to his covenant promises. We get that from this image of the fact that the angel was not only wrapped in a cloud, but he had a rainbow over his head. Anytime God's people hear about a rainbow, anytime people, God's people see a rainbow, it is to take us back to Genesis chapter 9. And the, the covenant promise that was given to, to Noah. When the bow is in the cloud, I will see it, God says. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. This is the sign of the covenant. Actually, in Greek here, it's not just that he sees a rainbow around and over the head of the angel. But there's actually a definite article there in the Greek. It's the rainbow. Because this isn't the first time we've seen a rainbow Back in chapter 4, we saw a rainbow in the picture that we got of the throne room of heaven. A rainbow was encircling the throne. Both then and here, this is a reminder to John and to the people of God that God is faithful to his covenant promises. That he will be their God and they will be his people no matter what. That he will redeem his people no matter what they go through in this life. They can never be taken away from his hand. God is with His people. God is faithful to His covenant promises. And another aspect of truth that we see here in this passage is that God is sovereignly bringing His plan, His decree to completion. We see the sovereignty of God here in many different ways. The end of verse 3, we, we're seeing this angel, this, this Christ figure, Christ Himself, being described as having a face like the sun and legs like pillars of fire. He has a face that, that shows the truth of God, the light of God. And he has pillars of fire for legs. He is strong. We read at the end of verse 2 that he has set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. In ancient cultures, when you put your foot on top of something, you were establishing ownership over it. You were declaring Conquest over something. And this angel with the light and the truth and the strength of God himself is putting his feet over all of creation. Everything on the sea and everything on the land. And notice at the beginning of verse 3, he calls out with a loud voice, with a voice that is like a lion that's roaring. This is a powerful, kingly voice that has authority. We see that God is sovereign. But it's not just that He's sovereign. He is sovereignly bringing His plan to completion. Now, where do we see that? Well, notice at the beginning of verse 2 that the angel has something in his hand. We're told that he had a little scroll opened in his hand. Now, that's not the first time we've seen a scroll either. Uh, We talked about the scroll when we saw it back in Revelation 5 and 6. And we talked about there that the scroll was the, the, the entirety of the plan of God. The eternal decrees of Almighty God. And here we have the same scroll, but it's described as being a little bit different. Here it's being described as both little and open. You'll remember that we were told that the Lamb of God was the only one who could open the scroll. And the Lamb of God, Jesus Himself, took the scroll and began to open it. And as the seals were opened, the plan, the decrees of God began to be affected. That's the reason why it's being described here as being little. It's indicating that God's master plan of redemptive history is almost complete. It's almost finished. There's not much left of it to be revealed. 
God has been accomplishing all that He intended and He planned from before the foundation of the world. We may not get to know all of the details of His plan. That's what we're being told in verse 4. John didn't get to write all of it down so that we don't get to know all of it. But what is certain is what we read in verses 5 and 6. That this mighty angel, that this the Christ figure, swears that it will be completed without delay. This is incredible good news of truth for us. That God is sovereignly bringing His plan to completion. God's master plan includes you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Your redemption. Your protection. Your being identified as His very beloved and treasured possession. This is what is true. But notice it's not just about us. Not just about our individual salvation. What also we see here is truth is that God is building his church. Now, where do I get that from? Well, in verse 7, we see that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as has been promised. The mystery of God. That's actually a fairly common phrase. Particularly, we read about it in Paul's letters. Paul actually addressed it a couple of different times and even specifically told us what it is. What is the mystery of God that will be fulfilled? If you'll turn to the left in your Bibles, just a little bit, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. It's on page 977 if you're still looking in the Red Bibles. Paul actually tells us what is the mystery of God that will be fulfilled. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by the revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the mystery of God that is going to be fulfilled as God's plan is completed As the seventh trumpet is blown, we are told that God is about the business of building his church. The mystery of God, the mystery of Christ is that God is building one unified, diversified people of God. He is building his church that is filled with all kinds of people. That's what we're going to see at the end of our passage for today in verse 11. As John is commanded to go out and to prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. It's language that reminds us of what we read in chapter 5 verse 9 and chapter 7 and verse 9. That God is gathering together people from every tribe and language and people and nation and kings. He will not be denied. He will not be stopped. And he is doing it even now. And the more that we are able to see it taking shape in our midst, in our church, in our community, we are glorifying God. This is what is true. This is the intermission time period. This is the truth that God is trying to get his people to grab hold of, to hold fast to. That indeed he is with his people. 
He is faithful to His covenant promises. He is sovereignly bringing about His plan of redemption to completion. And He is building His church. This is what's true. And now, we're supposed to hold fast to it. Where do I get that from? Well, you can see that in verses 9 and 10. John is told that he's supposed to go to this angel and to take that little scroll that the angel is holding. And when he does, when he, does he goes to the angel and asks the angel to give it to him. The angel excuse me, tells John to take it and then to do something a little bit unusual. Take it and eat it, he says. It's this image of taking the scroll, the plan of God, the decrees of God, the word of God, and internalize it, eat it, digest it, believe it, hold fast to it. It will be as sweet as honey, he is told in his mouth. It reminds us of Psalm 19. God's word is sweeter than honey. What is true? The truth of God's word is sweet. The gospel of God's grace and mercy to us in Christ is sweet to us. But he's told that as he eats it, it will also be bittersweet. There's a bitterness that comes with the truth. There's a bitterness that comes with the gospel. With it comes trials and persecutions and suffering until Jesus returns. After all, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 1 that the gospel, the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. They don't like it. So we can expect that there's going to be bitterness in this life as we wait for our Savior to return. But in the midst of that, John is being told and we are being told that we are to hold fast to these truths, to take them in, to digest them, to believe them, to receive them and hold fast to them that we might be sustained by them. Don't you just hate it when someone tells you the end of a movie or the end of a book before you've gotten to the end. How they spoil it. Maybe it's a movie you've been waiting a long time to watch or maybe it's a book you've been waiting a long time to read and you have all kinds of expectation and anticipation and somebody tells you maybe on purpose or maybe accidentally the ending and how it can spoil it for you and ruin it for you. I heard about a study uh, this past week. I heard about a study that was done a number of years ago by two professors at the University of California in San Diego, actually two psychologists, and they wanted to create a study that would look at that phenomenon to see if it's actually the case. Is it really the case that when the story that we're reading or the movie that we're watching, when we find out what happens at the end before we get to the end, does it really ruin it for us? So they created this study and they got a number of subjects and they gave them uh, books, uh, novels that they hadn't read before that had twists at the end, surprise endings, and they gave it to them to read. But for a select group of them, they actually inserted into the stories spoilers about the end. And then they interviewed everyone at the end to see what the outcome was. And their findings were actually kind of surprising. What they found was the people who had the spoilers inserted into the stories actually appreciated and enjoyed the stories more than those who didn't have the spoilers. Now they 
we're realizing that there are probably lots of different reasons for that, but they were suggesting that there was at least one possibility for why that's the case. This is what one of the psychologists said. It could be that once you know how the story turns out, you're more comfortable processing the information and can focus on a deeper understanding of the story. When you know how the story is going to end, there's a sense in which you're not worried about trying to figure it all out. You know how it's going to end, and so you have time to process. There's a comfort level to process and to dig deeper into the story as you're going. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you understand that God has given us the greatest story ever? His word the, the, the plan of redemption, it has been given to us and He gave us a spoiler. We know how the story ends even though we are still living in this life until Christ returns. And the end of the story is this, Jesus wins. Evil is defeated. And if you are in Christ, that means that you win with Him. What He wins, we get. Revelation 10 is meant to fill us with hope and strength and encouragement now as we live now because we know now how the story is going to end and it is sure and it is certain. No matter what we are called to go through in this life, no matter the trials, the afflictions, the persecutions, the sufferings, the doubts, no matter what is on the news today, No matter what we experience, we know how the story ends. Jesus wins. And because we are united to Him by faith, we win with Him. In the midst of moments, maybe even seasons of hopelessness, of doubts, of discouragement, here's the antidote. Here's the help. Here's the hope. We are told to hold fast, to receive this truth and take it in, to believe it, to allow it to nourish us spiritually and to hold fast to it. But lastly, I want you to see that this wonderful, these wonderful truths that are ours to hold fast to, they're not just for us. They're not just for our hope and our help in our salvation, in our comfort, because God's people are not only to hold fast to what is true, but we are to take what is true and to proclaim it to the world. Look at how uh, Revelation 10 ends. John's told to, take this, told to take this scroll, the truth of God's word, the truth of God's plan of judgment and redemption, God's eternal decree, and to eat it. And he eats it, he takes it in, he digests it, he tastes the sweetness of the truth of God, the sweetness of the gospel, and the bitterness that comes with it in this life. And then he's told to go do something in verse 11. I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. He's called to go out and to take this wonderful truth that is ours for God's people and to proclaim it to the whole world, to every people and nation and language and tribes and even authorities. God is building a multi-ethnic, wide, socioeconomic, global church. And here's the incredible thing about that. He intends to use us as a means to that end. At the end of Matthew as Jesus was planning to ascend, he gathers his disciples again together to give them what is often referred to as the Great Commission, 
We're not going to look at that in detail today, but we are going to be looking at that over the next four Sundays of Advent. The Great Commission is Jesus gathering the eleven disciples together. Judas was no longer with them. And He gave them marching orders. He gave them a call that they were to go out into all the world. And through those disciples, to all of Jesus' disciples, He gives us this call to make disciples of all the nations. That as we go out into every sphere, into every nook and cranny of the world, we are to be making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity, and teaching them all of God's Word. These wonderful truths that we are given, that we are to hold fast to, that God is with us, that God is faithful to His covenant promises, that He is sovereignly working out His plan, that He is building His global church, they are for us to believe and to hold fast to, but they are also for us to proclaim to the entire world. So let me finish this morning by just reflecting on a few ways that we can try to do that. We are called to take these things into the whole world, every part of it, every nook and cranny. And I think part of what this means for us is that every single one of us needs to go. Every single one of us needs to go. Trinity as a church has a long history, wonderful history of raising up people from within our midst to go out. We've helped to plant three different churches, one in Mankato, one in Boston, and one in Billings. We've had medical professionals go out and do medical missions all over the world many times. We've sent the DuPonts out to Africa. We've sent the Hoots out to Bulgaria. We're in the process of getting the McCafferty's to Cambodia. We've had a sizable portion of our church go out and serve at Crow Creek. And we want to see that continue. Maybe God is calling you to go out to make disciples. To proclaim the truth of God's word. But even if he's not calling you to leave and to go somewhere else. He is calling you to proclaim the truth of God wherever he has placed you. God's truth, the gospel, needs to go into every sphere of life. We are to live out God's truth in word and in deed in every area of our lives. That means in our homes with our families and our children, in our neighborhoods with our neighbors, in our places of employment, at school if we're students. We are to take the word of God out in word and deed, proclaiming it and showing it, telling it and living it. Every one of us is called to go. We are also all called to pray. For those who have gone out, for those who are going out, for God to raise up more laborers to be sent out, for God to open our eyes right where we are so we might see how we might Take the truth of God's word and proclaim it to the world. We need to be praying for the missionaries that our church supports. We try to get those needs in front of you on a regular basis through the TPC Connect page, through our website, through our weekly prayer journal. We need to be praying for God's work at Crow Creek in particular that he would raise up a church planter, a pastor for that place. All of us are called to pray. All of us are called to to go. 
And all of us are called to give. If you give to our church, our general budget, then you are giving in part to support missionaries and ministry and church plants and the work at Crow Creek that we support as a church. But I want to encourage you, perhaps with one other way, you could be doing that. Maybe even to go a little bit further. What if between now and the end of the year, you pick at least one particular missionary or one particular uh, ministry that our church supports or that's here within the community and give specifically to it? Above and beyond what you give to our church. Maybe that would be New Life or Next Chapter or the McCafferty's or the Crow Creek Angel Tree uh, ministry that we have in the foyer uh, even today. Or the seminary in India that we heard about at our church missions conference a few weeks ago. God's calling us to give. as He would use His resources that He's given to us to be good stewards with to be a blessing so that His kingdom, His word, would go out. This is the intermission of Revelation chapter 10. The time before Christ's second coming, the second advent of Jesus. The time that we're living in right now. We're in the midst of the seals and the trumpets. And as we experience all of the things that are being described in these passages about the trumpets and the seals, we are being called as God's people to hold fast to what is true. To take in the truth of God's word, to believe it, to hold fast to it for ourselves, that we might believe and be strengthened and sustained in the midst of all of the challenges and difficulties we face in this life, and to proclaim it to the world, both near and far. Let's pray together. Father, we know that it's so easy for us to become overwhelmed, whether it's with our own sin or with all that's happening around us in our lives, what's happening on the news every day. We are prone to become discouraged, maybe even going through seasons of hopelessness, doubt. But we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is steadfast. We thank you that it is true. We thank you for the wonderful truths that are revealed to us here, even in just this one chapter of Revelation. I pray that you would help us to eat it, to eat it up, to internalize the truth of your word and to be sustained as we would hold fast to it. But I pray, Father, that you would give us a burning in our hearts that not only this would be a blessing for us, for our hope and for our encouragement and for our peace, but you would give a burning in our hearts that we would have a desire to see this wonderful truth to be proclaimed to the other ends of the world. And would you be pleased to use us to that end? We thank you because of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.